Good morning, church. All right, if you turn with me for, to Genesis chapter 1, we have a big chunk of text that we're reading this morning. And um, this is in contrast to last, last week where we got through really four words. And I made a promise, I'm going to stick to that promise, that we're going to move through Genesis at a pace that exceeds four words a Sunday. Um, This is a great sacrifice, you must understand, but this is for you. But Genesis chapter 1, and um, this is a text that you know, like boys and girls, this is a text you know. And I think one of the problems with being so familiar with something is that sometimes you can lose sight of the uh, intricacy of it. You're so familiar with the form, you're so familiar with the big picture that you lose sight of those small details. This building, for example, we're so used to coming into it. If you've lived in Chester for a long time, you're so used to driving past it. And although there probably are some things that could use some work, paint, the levelness of things, uh, the heating and air conditioning, there are a lot of really neat features about this building. There's a lot of really neat architectural details about it. And if you stop and you look and you take time to not just walk in, walk out, or drive by it at a reasonable speed on 121, then you can notice those things. And so in a similar way, we come to Genesis 1, a text that we know. If you have a storybook Bible, if you've ever had a Bible coloring book, inevitably we've seen pictures of and colored in pictures of the animals being created and the stars being created. But this morning, as we go through this, again, a longer chunk of text, but something that is worth reading, allow God's word to minister to you as we go through it. So Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the, from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were in the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. 
and to rule the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God so that it was good. And then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing on the ground after its kind. And God said that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle of over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is in the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus... The heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Will you pray with me? Lord, today is a day in which, in our culture, we acknowledge and we celebrate fatherhood. In what we just read, we acknowledge your fatherhood, fatherhood of all. There is not one molecule of which you did not speak it into being. There is not one organism that did not come about by your will. There is not one piece of land on this world that did not come into being by your sovereign power. And Lord, there is not one person that does not exist under your reign. So, Lord, inasmuch as we acknowledge that you are Father of all, we also go back to what we learned this morning in the catechism question, a question that was for children, but something that we ought to be incredibly cognizant of, that although you are Father of all in one sense, in another sense, you are the covenant Father of those who are fellow heirs with your Son, Jesus Christ. And we can call you Abba, Father. We can come before you and know your loving kindness. We can know your covenant grace. And because of that, we turn to this text. We look at the opening words, and we don't become preoccupied with birds and fish and plants and stars. But our hearts are drawn to you, the God who created these things the God who sustains these things, the God who reigns over all things. Impress this upon our hearts and minds as we turn to your word again this morning. In the name of your Son, we pray. 
Amen. God created everything. God created everything. It's a, it's a simple statement, and we see it in that very first verse in Genesis 1-1. It's in the second half of Genesis 1-1. We spent a lot of time last week. In fact, all of the time last week was focused on the first half of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. The second half of it explains what he created. God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, what we get for the rest of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2 is exactly this explained in great detail. What are those things? And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes all of the things. And I just went through them. We listed them off. The text gives us explicit detail of every kind of thing that is there was created by God, whether it be something that is sentient, an animal, or something that is not, a star or a rock. There is nothing that is not God's creation, and there is nothing that is out of his control. God created the heavens and the earth. Every last bit of the world that we can see, and even the world that we cannot see, was created by God. God created the earth. He created everything terrestrial. So, there is not one tangible thing that we can walk out to today, whether it originated from the ground, it came from these lovely, rocky New England fields, and somehow in the springtime, before the plants even came up, a rock came up. That came because God created that rock. Certainly, we acknowledge that he uses all sorts of biological and geological processes to bring about things like rocks. That would be the geological. And then there's baby birds. You may even have a nest outside your house or your place of business where there's baby birds. And those came about by God's providential hand. Those things all came about from God. Everything terrestrial that we see came about by God. But God created the heavens and the earth. So he created the heavens, which means that he created everything, wait for it, extraterrestrial. Now, this is important. And actually, I mean, this certainly don't want to get derailed by this, but inevitably we are seeing news stories about how there's things that people are seeing in the skies and things that people are seeing in their backyards. And a significant part of you ought to say, what are they trying to hide? Not about what's coming in the skies, but what's actually going on that they're trying to hide and distract from. But that's neither here nor there. But the scripture is clear that God created the heavens. So this means that the stars that we can see, the, the billions of those, and the stars that we cannot see, God created. The entire cosmos, Genesis 1-1 says, God created. There is nothing that God did not create. He created sky. He created the planets that are in that sky. And he created spirits. So once again, if you want to go down a conspiracy theory track, which we're not going to do for too long, God created the things that we cannot see, which scripture says belong to the heavens, which are angels, which are demons. Maybe they fly ships. Maybe they have green skin. I'm not going to say one way or another. That's for Bible study this week. John and Joe will answer all those questions. But God created things that are extraterrestrial in the sense that, that saying that word is just packed with so much stuff, but that's just the, the, the nature of the idea of heavens and earth. God created things that are not tangible, that are not visible, that are not the normal things that we are familiar with. 
And so that is to say, everything spiritual, everything that is not physical, was created by God. So things that are not of this world and the things that we encounter of that kind in God's word are most frequently those things that are spirit and those things that are far away. So God created the heavens and the earth. There is nothing that is not God's creation. There is nothing that is out of his control. And this comprehensive perspective of the creator's creation is the primary purpose of Genesis 1. This comprehensive picture of the creator's creation is the primary purpose of Genesis 1. So again, a little bit of a rabbit trail. This one a little bit more palatable than the idea of UFOs. Genesis 1 was not written to solve modern problems. Genesis 1 was not composed thousands of years ago with the knowledge that in the, in the 1600s and 1700s and certainly in the 1800s, the church and the natural order would come under significant assault from theories of evolution and the like. That was not why Genesis 1 was written. Is it useful in that context? Absolutely. It is useful in any context. But we have to remember that when Moses was given the inspiration to write down Genesis 1, and he handed God's word, he communicated God's word to the Israelites as they are entering the promised land, he was not doing so so that they would be able to refute the idea of evolution. Is it useful for that purpose? Yes. But is that its purpose? No. That is its secondary purpose. Theologian Herman Boving said that the teaching of creation is not an explanation of the problem of existence. So it's not that the, the, the idea of the teaching of creation is not where did we come from necessarily, how did it happen, things like that. He says its significance is first and foremost religious and ethical. So church, I, I want to make this very clear. This is not some sort of, of explanation of or, or, or advocacy of any one particular view of creation. That is coming. We will get to that. That is important. That is a necessary implication of the text. But the first and foremost implication of Genesis 1:1, excuse me, Genesis 1 as a chapter is along the same lines of what we talked about with Genesis 1:1 last week. And that is God is the focus. Sometimes we feel like we are defending God's honor when we, we go to Genesis 1 and we try to get into the minutia of the nature of creation. And in doing so, we are actually pushing God and his intended purpose for communicating this information to us to the sides. We are actually focusing more on the creation than the creator. Certainly, the creation bears God's fingerprints. What he communicates to us about how he created and what we created is a derivation of his nature. We mentioned it in the confession this morning. It was what John Ledison was a, um, a, a prayer of confession from a Puritan named Philip Doddridge. And, and he said that we look to God's tools of revelation. We, we heard that this morning. So God's creation, the tools of his revelation point back to him but we always have to remember what is the primary purpose of what he's communicating about himself. Remember, church, everyone believes that the world came from somewhere. There is not a person out here that believes that the world did not come from somewhere. 
everyone has a doctrine of origins. Whether you are a Christian, progressive Christian, whether you're of another religion, whether you consider yourself atheistic or ag agnostic, you have a doctrine or an idea of where creation came from. And combating those various perspectives is precisely the purpose of Genesis 1. Because again, you rewind back to when Genesis and the entirety of the Pentateuch, the other five books of Moses, were given to Israel. Think of the battles that they were fighting. They were not battling Darwinism. They were not battling materialism. They were not battling naturalism or humanism. Some of the contemporary issues that we struggle with that Genesis 1 through 3, and certainly the entirety of the biblical text, helps us to defend against. But the children of Israel, as they were entering Canaan, they were dealing with the baggage that they were bringing out of Egypt and all of those false perspectives of those false views of how the world came to be, Egypt's pantheon, all of their gods, their creation myths, and God and his providence knew that they were going to come face to face with a similar but different set of false views about origins and the God that brought existence into being as they entered into Canaan and dealt with all of those tribes that we see articulated in books like Joshua and Judges. So to kind of reiterate that, Genesis answers the question with a who regarding creation before and in front of it answers questions about what, how, when, and why. It answers those questions. Genesis talks about the what of creation. We just went through it. It answers the how of creation. We'll actually talk about this morning. The when is a little bit murky and foggy, and it doesn't give us a perfect timeline. And the why, it does get to here in a few minutes, or excuse me, here in a few chapters. But the first question that Genesis 1.1 and the ensuing verses answer pertains to the who of creation. Just because man is the capstone of creation doesn't mean that man is the focus. Just because there is a lot of space, so from a quantity standpoint, there's a lot of space, it doesn't mean that the cosmos or the universe is the focus. The focus of Genesis 1, the focus of the creation account, is that Yahweh, I am, God revealing himself to man, is the beginning, the author, and the purpose of all things. Just as, and... and a child answered this morning what our purpose is. The Westminster Catechism says that our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are contingent upon him to have purpose. Our entire creation is contingent upon him to have purpose. Everything falls in line under God. The rocks and the trees and the birds know this. Humankind and our fallenness with our, our sentient rebellion against God, are the only ones that truly try to turn the created order on its head. And that's when problems come. So notice, too, that creation of the world takes up less than two chapters. And I, I don't mean to put too fine of a point on this, but I just think this is an important refocusing of how we approach Genesis. Notice the creation of the entire world takes only two chapters. So... Everything that's out there, the explanation of its coming into being, 
less than two chapters. How long does God spend, through the inspiration of, of his word, talking about getting to know Abraham? We'll get to that in a few, a few verses. How long does he take to talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? Joseph, who is a relatively minor player in the grand scheme of the patriarchs, has chapter after chapter after chapter talking about his life, yet the creation of the world itself is given in less than two chapters. Did God make a mistake? Think about all the epistles, all of the, going, all of the, the, the various aspects of how we ought to live our life. God did not make a mistake in quickly articulating the nature of creation. The nature of the creation account was to set up the who of the covenant God who was revealing himself to his people. It was the covenant God who created all things and did so by the power of his word. It was the covenant God who did so and did it by himself. This is the purpose of Genesis 1. Now, the how of creation does matter. And I will say that, personally, seven days, young earth, these things matter and they're worth talking about. But these things are secondary to God creating. And we have to have those things in line. And within the grand scheme of orthodoxy, that is something that the church has maintained for hundreds of years. That the primary thing, and you go to the confessions, the, the historical confessions, whether it be the Westminster or London Baptist or all the other major confessions, their purpose in communicating the nature of creation is what we just articulated. God creating is the primary thing. Seven days, a young earth, as I said, these things are important, but only important in light of a God, his purpose of creation, and his plan of redemption. If your scheme of creation, regardless of what it is, goes over and above God being the creator, his purpose in his creation, and his purpose of reconciling a broken creation to himself, specifically the redeeming of a people, then we are missing the point. And once more, God gives this to us very quickly in a chapter and a half of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2. So you might say, if this matters, why is it more clear? Well, I think it is clear. I think God being the focus is very, very clear. But you know, why aren't the particulars of creation? Why isn't the how of creation more clear? And again, what is most important is clear. These things matter. The nature of creation, being uh, subscribing to the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture, they do matter, and they have implications as you continue to work through Genesis and certainly through the rest of Scripture. And I think it bears mentioning that if we believe in a God who is able to enter his creation was able to live a perfect life, was able to die on the cross, and was able to be resurrected, then we ought to be willing to believe all the other things that Scripture teaches us, particularly about the origins of all things coming from that same God. But it doesn't give us the answers in the way that we'd like necessarily. It doesn't spell things out in a particular way that would necessarily satisfy a 21st century mind. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that we rewind 2,000 years, and the early church fathers were having these exact same conversations. There has never been a perfect consensus among the church, at least when it was not being enforced by sword. 
regarding the nature of creation. But what has been consistent throughout the ages is what is most important, that God is the center of creation. God is the center of creation, not as a created entity himself, but as the emphasis and the focus of creation. Once more, I make no bones about it. My, my perspective on this is a young earth and a literal seven-day creation. But that falls secondary to the God who created those things. When we ask these questions and we want it more clear, I think the words of, of Isaiah 45 are important to hear. And the, the last 10 chapters of Isaiah, we're actually going through these right now in our Bible reading plan. These are like phenomenal apologetic texts over and over again, declaring who, the nat- who God is and his nature. Isaiah 45 says, Woe to the one who contends with his maker. You know, God, why didn't you make it more clear? That would be an example of contending with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing that you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are in your labor pains? If we look to God and we said, you know, you should have made this more clear. You should have spelled this out better. You should have inspired a commentary to go with Genesis 1.1 and go with Genesis 1 and go with Genesis itself. And we are basically asking the potter, as clay vessels, what are you doing? What is most important to acknowledge, church, is that God created the heavens and the earth. When we see God's creation, we must see the powerful creator, or we're missing the forest for the trees. Let, me be, let this be my encouragement to you, particularly in our context, who we are, the makeup of our congregation, families primarily with lots of children with a great investment in our children's education. We must never put the nature of creation over the one who created it. We must never put the, the ideas that we, we certainly derive from Scripture regarding how God created and have that supersede the glory that belongs to the one who created those things. Both matter, but establishing a priority is what God is communicating to us in these first chapters of Genesis. So first, God created everything. Part and parcel with that is the second thing we want to look at this morning, that God created everything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. In in verse 2, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. As John mentioned earlier before we went to confession, God was not and is not dependent on anything or anyone. God and God alone is truly independent, truly autonomous, and truly free. Now, we could talk, you know, we'll get into, we we talked about creation, so I'll kick that hornet's nest. We'll talk about free will right now. We'll kick that hornet's nest too. When we talk about free will, are we truly free? Are we truly free? Is humankind Truly, regardless of your perspectives on Calvinism, Arminianism, on, on, on any of that sort of stuff, no one can acknowledge that man is truly free because we are completely dependent upon so many things. If I were to keep preaching in an hour from now, would you be free from the biomechanical processes in your stomach that are anticipating lunch at around noon? Could your mind 
suppress that. Say I preach for two hours. Don't tempt me. No, I won't do that. We are not completely free because we have not only our own biological processes that we are slaves to, but as we might see here in a couple of months, the external stimuli that impress upon us, temperature, thank the Lord that we meet in the mornings and not in the evenings in this space, weather, things like that. We are completely dependent upon that. Our families, we are, we are not autonomous. Outside of the question of our relationship with God, which I think Scripture makes very, very clear that we are not autonomous in that regard, we do not have complete freedom on our own as organisms. But God is completely free. God is completely autonomous. God is completely independent, which means that when God created, he created ex nihilo. This Latin phrase that you might hear frequently means out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What is seen was not made of things which are visible. God did not have a box show up at his front door with parts of world that he decided to put together. He did it by himself. And again, this is important. This is in contrast to the false gods of the nations, the nation of Egypt that that Israel was leaving, the nations that they traveled through as they were going from Egypt to the promised land, and the nations of the promised land, the Canaanites that they were going to be coming in contact with. When you go to those nations' mythologies, when you go to the mythologies of many other nations and many other religions throughout the world, they have other perspectives on how the world came into being. The world that we walk on today was created by the corpses of deceased deities. The world that we live in today came into being by other worlds that had come under judgment and were being rebuilt by pagan deities that there were pieces to pick up from the cosmos by pagan gods, pantheons of gods, to put them together. These are simple examples of ways that other peoples, other religions, other nations that Israel would have come in contact with how they believed things came to be. So the simplicity of God created the heavens and the earth was a strike was an apologetic, was a polemic against these beliefs that they were coming in contact with. God, Yahweh, I am, was reminding them that he was not like the false gods of the nations. He is independent. He is powerful. Notice what it says in verse 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. What's meant to be communicated here was just emptiness, that, that the pre-creation existence was, is meant to be communicated to us as just a swirling black ocean of chaos, that there was nothing. Can you think of nothing? Sometimes I see the eyes of people and I think they are actually thinking of nothing. But can you try to think of nothing? It's impossible. So how would you communicate nothing to somebody? How would you communicate the lack of something? 
Even when you talk about space, you are, you are acknowledging parameters. You're, you're acknowledging that here is a box, and in that box there is nothing. It's very hard to think of nothing without thinking of what's at the end of that nothing. Our understanding of space is often depicted in relation to how far it is between physical objects. It is virtually impossible for us to understand nothing. So, rewind 6,000 years, how would they have understood nothing? I think God does a very good job in Genesis 1-2. Formless, void, darkness over the surface of the deep, or the surface of the waters. Just emptiness. Notice, too, though, what's being communicated in this. There's this swirling chaos of deep, this swirling waters of nothingness. It had to be whipped into shape. God had to take something that wasn't and make it something that was. God had to make something that didn't have form, that didn't have a structure, that didn't have anything of value, and make it into something that he saw and it was good. You could almost make the argument that because of sin, the chaos has been reintegrated into the nature of our world. But that's not how it's always going to be. This verse always troubles people that, like the ocean, in Revelation 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I think that what we have at the very end of Scripture actually has a direct tie to what we see at the very beginning of Scripture, a swirling sea of black, deep chaos is fixed by God and brought into order. And it's actually what we see at the very end at Revelation 21 as we're entering into these final grand throne room images of God and his new heavens and his new earth. We're actually seeing that swirling chaos being completely banished, being completely gotten rid of being completely restored, that creation design is being fulfilled. This was not simply some ocean or some water that God came across and he decided to build something on it in Genesis 1-2. I think what we have here is much more significant, much more deep, that God took the nothingness and turned it into something. And he was able to do this because of his self-existence. And so even before we are introduced to the phrase, the, ter the term Yahweh, the phrase I am in Scripture, because what we're getting now as we read God over and over and over again in Genesis 1 is the word Elohim, this, this kind of generic term for God. But we are getting the character and the nature of the I am, the self-existent one in Genesis 1. So although God doesn't introduce himself as Yahweh until we get to his interaction with Moses, this is him revealing his self-existent nature. I am who I am, not I am the God of the sun, I am the God of the harvest, I am the God of fertility. God is the God who is. He is just the God of all things. And he communicates this to us and he communicates it to the Israelites by showing that all things came from him and they came out of nothing. All things depend on God. God depends on no thing. We, church, like everything else in reality, are totally dependent upon God. The atheist, the agnostic, the person who shakes his fist at the idea of a God he doesn't believe in, 
only has the synapses between his ears and the tendons in his elbow to shake that fist because of the God who created such things and the very Christ who sustains those things. And this is why we are all subject to God's law, as Joe talked about earlier, because we are totally dependent upon God. This is, as we sing, my Father's world. The only reality that exists is God's reality. There is no free agents. We are all, all of us, every car driving past us this morning, everyone you will come in contact with as you flip through the channels and see people in the far corners of the globe, every person is completely dependent on their creation and their continued existence, what is seen and what is unseen in their spirit, and ultimately the fate of their soul and their eternal destiny is wholly dependent upon the self-existent God. We are not independent. We are not autonomous. And nothing about us, even as Western, people in a Western civilization, even as Americans, even as New Englanders, nothing about us is truly free. So God created everything. God created everything out of nothing. And God created everything by his word. God created everything by his word. A refrain that we see repeated over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 1 is that then God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. As a parent... As an employer, you say things. Does that second part always happen? Is it so? Sadly, no. Sometimes, and let's be fair, we pick on children a lot. Sometimes it's from our, uh, our, our lack of quality communication, our lack of using the right words, our lack of clarity. We say things, and even if we have power, even if we have authority, even if we have a clear speaking voice, what we say is not always so. But that's not the case with God. When God said it was so, we see this over and over again when it comes to the celestial bodies, when it comes to the, the, the waters being separated from the waters below and the waters above, when it comes to the, those things being filled with plants and animals. God said it, and it was so. And nothing came out half-baked. Nothing came out burned around the edges. Nothing came out misshapen. Then God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. This is fascinating to think of. Think about the creation order. Think about animals. Think about things that don't look quite right. Think about the spiders, ladies. Think about snakes. Think about a giraffe with a long neck. Think about an elephant with its misshapen proportions. Think about our own bodies and our inability even to understand what's happening at, a, at, a, uh, at, at a, the deepest level of how our, our brains and our, our, our bodies work together. 
All of these things that we can't comprehend, either because of aesthetic or at a deeper level, at a scientific level, God said it was so, and he saw that it was good. Creation happened because of God's power, God's sovereignty, and God's goodness. This is the recurring phrase we see throughout the particulars of creation. In the idea of God saying, God said, God said, God said, we see God's power. Creation came about by the power of God's word. He has the power to create and the power to create from nothing. Some of you have created remarkable things. I've seen what some of you can do with wood. I've seen what some of you can do with metal. I've seen what some of you can do with flour and sugar and butter. And although I really appreciate the wood and the metal stuff, it's the baked goods that ought to make all of us say, thank you for the ability of men and women to create things. But we create all of these things out of what exists. God's power, as we mentioned earlier, is a power to create out of nothing. This is something that we really can't wrap our minds around. A lot of this we can't, and I think that's why it's important that we have that primacy of this is instilling this idea of awe and grandeur regarding God and his character. Augustine, fourth century church father, in in commenting on this phrase, God saying over and over again in Genesis 1, says that we ought to understand that God did not say, let there be light by a sound brought forth from the lungs or the tongue or the teeth. Such thoughts are those of persons physically preoccupied. To be wise in accord with the flesh is death. Let there be light was spoken ineffably or perfectly or as the words came, as God spoke that, as God thought that, as God had that communicative act, it was in that moment that light came into being. It's some deep thoughts to articulate the depth that we need to behold God's creative work with. God was not sitting somewhere and said, let there be light. And those, uh, th- those sound waves had to travel into nothingness to become light. It was actually more instantaneous and more basic than that. And there's no way to describe it. There's no scientific device that could measure it because science itself Data itself, time itself, is dependent upon God's creative act. And if we try to wrap our minds around it, we go back to the text in Isaiah that we said before and said, and we'd be asking, God, why didn't you do it in a dumber way that someone like me could understand? It was through God's power that he spoke things into being. And then it was so. Again, there was no lapse There was no misheard command. It wasn't as if God was talking about making um, a, a fish, and then when God was talking about making birds, and then God was talking about making mammals, and something got in late, and that's why we have platypuses, platypi. Or that's why we have bats, because they're kind of halfway in between. And we, we make jokes about that, about, you know, this one was a little bit wrong and the edges didn't come out quite right. It was kind of a half fish, half whatever. And actually, you know, people in centuries past believed in these things. God's design was perfect, even why we might not perfectly understand why there's platypuses and why there's bats. 
But God said it, and it was so. It, it happened precisely to his specifications, precisely as he had it planned in his divine will. Creation came definitively through his sovereign, perfect will. 20th century philosopher and apologist, Christian author and pastor Francis Schaeffer wrote that the universe has order. It is not chaos. One is able to move ever deeper into the universe and not come upon a precipice of incoherence. One is able to move deeper into the universe and not come across a precipice of incoherence. God spoke things into being, and it was so, and it is so at the level of the eye, through a telescope, and also through a microscope. Everything came into being perfectly as God commanded it to be. And that's why biomechanical processes, geological processes continue to work all these years after creation. So God had perfect power. He spoke things into being. God had sovereign, uh, sovereignty in his creation. It was so. And then lastly, God saw that it was good. God's goodness is communicated in creation. So again, I think that we, we fall into these patterns. Again, we, we get hung up on the how of creation. And then we sometimes quickly flip into the fallenness of creation. And this is important. We took time to confess earlier. So this is a priority, and we're not downplaying this. This matters. And we understand that Paul writes in Romans that all creation is groaning, waiting for Christ to return. But creation itself is good. We can't, and we'll talk about this next week a little bit more, we can't take that perspective that it's all going to burn up anyway, so who cares as we crumple up our burger wrapper and throw it out the window. God saw it, said it, and it was so, and then God saw that it was good. Creation came about, and creation was good because the creator is good. Revelation 4 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Creation reflects, the psalmist says it, the, proverb, uh, the, the, the Proverbs mention it, the prophets appeal to it, that the creation itself rings out with the goodness and the majesty of God. We see that when we hold a baby. We see that when we stand on top of a mountain. And everything in between shows the goodness and the glory of God. But beneath our eyes and our senses, we know it is good because God declared it good. And it's Fullness, he declared, very good. So church, we'll close with this. Creation happened because of God's power, his sovereignty, and his goodness. But we can't segregate that from the fact that we are part of God's creation. Prior to Christ, a fallen parts of God's creation, but a part of God's creation. And just as the sovereign God of the universe spoke things into being from nothing... Our salvation, our redemption, our recreation happens because of God's power, his sovereignty, and his goodness. It is a powerful God that can go into the life of a rebel sinner and draw him to himself. 
It is a sovereign God when that call goes out that it cannot be spurned because of our hard-heartedness, that he softens our heart and he transforms our heart. And it is a good God, a God that has the loving kindness that is spoken up over and over and over again, who doesn't just save us and leave us to our own devices, but transforms us, conforming us more and more into the image of his son day by day. And our salvation church is actually tied to what we're talking about. Christ himself says in Matthew 25, in talking about the final judgment, that the king will say to those on his right, those who he is pleased with, his elect, his people, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Your salvation has a direct line back to everything that we just read because it was in the very same mind of God that was able to speak perfectly and bring the world that you are walking on into being. The sovereign king prepared our salvation, the salvation of his church, the salvation of his people before the created world came into being. He also accomplished our salvation on the cross and secured our salvation at the moment, the specific moment, each and every one of us, a rebel sinner, was brought to relationship with Christ in our justification. What a message of assurance for the church. If you struggle with assurance of your faith, know that your faith is as sure and as firm as the ground you walk on because God prepared that before he created the foundation of the world. What is beneath the structure of this building? Even if things start to bend and start to move, and we need more of these ties to hold it all together, if all of those things begin to crumble, the foundation of this building is going to remain strong and firm. Now imagine something was put beneath that. How secure would that be? In fact, even if the building crumbled, what was beneath that foundation would be secure. That is our nature of salvation in Christ. If you believe in the air that you breathe and the ground you walk on, God's salvation of his people is more secure than that. And what a message of hope for the world. What a message of hope for the world. That if you are in Christ, if you repent of your sins in saying that this is all here simply by chance, and I am a a free agent that is at the level of divinity because I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, to whoever I want, with no cosmic repercussions. And you begin to see the meaninglessness of that perspective. You begin to see the hopelessness and the logical inconsistency of that. That there is a solution that was brought forth by the Son of God himself as he entered into his creation and preached a gospel of repentance and faith that doesn't require us to do anything, but simply to receive the good, gracious gift that he's given. So church, God created everything. God created everything out of nothing. God created everything by his word. Let these things be foremost in your mind as you read these texts, as you come to Genesis 1. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper We've been looking back this morning, looking back at creation, and the Lord's Supper is another opportunity for us to look back at a pivotal moment in 
the divine story, this historical redemptive work of God. And so we would invite you, uh, John and, and some of the other musicians are going to come up and lead us in some music. As the music is being played, we'd invite you to come up and receive the, the wine and the bread and bring it back to your seat. And again, as we say, this is an open table. This is not our table. This is Christ's table. We are not the hosts. Christ is the host. This meal is for all who are in Christ. But it's also for those who have taken a time to assess themselves legitimately, properly. How are you coming to the table? Just as you would straighten yourself up before you walked into a fancy dinner date, take a moment to straighten yourself up before the Lord. How is your relationship with Him? It doesn't require minutes or, or hours of confession. It just requires a recentering. How are you with your brother and sister in Christ? How are you with the world? These things matter. Straighten these things out even as you stand and as you walk to receive the elements and you will be blessed as we take them. So I'll pray and then we will take the Lord's Supper here in a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you created all things that somewhere on a farm, somewhere, a grape grew. And that grape grew from a tiny flower into a piece of fruit that has yeast on the exterior of its skin. And that that became a juice, and that over time that juice turned into something, something that can gladden the heart, something that has a potent taste. And so, Lord, as we come before you to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let us do keep in mind that these things were created by you just as everything else. But as we taste that potent flavor on our tongue, let us be reminded of what transpired 2,000 years ago on Calvary, that it was a potent sacrifice. It was not a weak sacrifice. It was not a sacrifice that would make us savable. It was a sacrifice that accomplished the salvation of those whose salvation was secured before the foundation of the world. In these moments, Lord, allow us to focus on the things that we need to think of as individuals as we come to your table, but also somewhere in our minds, make room for the fact that it is all connected, that there's no segment of our life, no aspect of your word, not Genesis 1, not the final chapter of Revelation, not the Lord's Supper that does not have a connection one to another because it is all your world and we live in it. So Lord, as we come to your supper, minister to us in this special, profound, ordained way. We ask this all in the name of your Son. Amen.